We'll take a brief break from doing that and welcome our first guest of the program, Mike Leonard from Leonard Trial Lawyers. Mike, you don't get to guess. I know you already want to. John, I would love to guess. I'm I'm really curious. Can I can I take a obscure guess? Maybe spandex shorts. <laughs> no, uh, col- brightly colored spandex shorts were outlawed and. Well, I've seen no, yeah. no, you can't do that. Yeah, well, I saw you wear them once, and I could see why people didn't want those anymore. <laughs> Mike Leonard from Leonard Trial Lawyers, uh, you've had a busy couple of weeks, and let's just jump right into this case that you had uh, that the the judge dismissed all the charges against your client. This was a long battle. Tell, give us a little bit of the the breakdown of what this case was. Yeah, I think you're referring to this case that we had in federal court in Chicago that was. Uh, indicted by the feds in 2016, literally six years ago. And the 10-count uh, indictment against our client and basically 10 counts of wire fraud. But what the, what the alleged scheme to defraud was that was allegedly supported the wire fraud counts was that our client was what they termed a spammer, mm-hmm. that he would, he would sign up with companies to do advertising campaigns for them and send, you know, what is called bulk email. Some people call spam, right? Mm-hmm. And so in signing these contracts with computer networks and computer server companies, um, he, he, pursuant to those agreements, agreed to abide by the terms of use and not send spam, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. And so, so because he did send spam in violation of his agreements, the Fed said, well, that was, that was a scheme to defraud these companies to use their computer networks and services and deprive the computer networks and servers of of space and bandwidth and therefore we're charging with wire fraud because when you made payments to these companies that constituted wire fraud i want to just make so sure whole, i got i want to just make sure i got it straight so he was hired by companies to do direct mail email marketing as long as he didn't spam they say he spammed a bunch of people which took up the networks, and so he didn't follow the agreement that he signed to through these private companies. Exactly, John. You are you are a quick study. So <laughs> to, you know, to, to the layperson and to me, it sounded like nothing more than a breach of contract case. And yeah, the why, is, why are the feds involved in that? Well, they shouldn't be. They never should have been. And you know what? What they do is they they come up with the the underlying theme, which is they come up with what is the scheme to defraud somebody. And in this case, they, they, they said it was a scheme to defraud these various companies that ran the computer networks and the servers. And they said, gee, in carrying out that scheme to defraud all these companies by, you know, sending bulk spam or bulk emails, that they committed wire fraud by sending payments uh, to use the server. So it, to me, from the beginning, it seemed far-fetched. It seemed like something the Fed shouldn't be involved in. It seemed like a breach of contract case. Uh, but it's awfully tough to get a federal criminal indictment dismissed on that basis. Can you explain so, one more time what why they think it was wire fraud? Because the servers that were used were the private company's servers. Exactly. That he had been employed so, by, and by getting payments from them, essentially them paying them, that would be a, a transfer of payment, so a wire transfer, that that was the fraud. Yeah, so so basically in any wire fraud case in federal court, you always start with there has to be some underlying scheme to defraud, okay? And so in this case, from the government's perspective, the underlying scheme to defraud was to falsely gain access to the computer servers and the computer networks by misrepresenting that he wasn't going to use them for spam purposes, okay? And so in furtherance of that alleged scheme, he then had to wire payments to these various companies. And sometimes the payments were for small dollar figures, you know, that maybe you have to pay somebody 
$169 for a month or for or forever to use their server, to use their network. But the underlying scheme, which was to gain access to the networks and the servers, then formed the basis of these 10 different wire fraud counts. So I agree with you. First of all, it's, it's convoluted. Secondly, it just doesn't seem like something the federal government would be involved in. Why didn't these so private... It, it really, Go ahead. Really Sorry. Sound, it really just doesn't sound like a, a private breach of contract dispute between parties. That's what it sounds like to me from the get-go. Did the private companies push the feds to sue? Did the, why didn't the private companies sue themselves, or did they? Were there multiple things going on at once? Yeah, unclear how the feds got an interest in it. You know, a lot of times what happens with federal prosecutions, you know, in Chicago and some of the other jurisdictions... They like novel cases, right? And so they saw an opportunity to get a spammer or a so-called spammer, what they claim to be a spammer. And I think that that zest to, you know, kind of be in the forefront of the law, getting a spammer who was well-known and had been prosecuted in state court previously, I think that's what caught their attention. So, you know, but for the notoriety uh, surrounding this individual, I don't think they ever would have been involved. They, They like cases that make a splash and, and that are sort of novel. Is that just your interpretation? They don't come out and say that. Oh, they'll, ne- they'll never tell you that, John. Okay. But of course, you know, look, look at look at the cases in Chicago, for instance, that get attention. Typically, they're ones that involve politicians. Sometimes they're ones that involve lawyers or sometimes they're ones that involve other type of public, you know, servants or people who, who make a lot of money. You know, so they, they like cases that, um, are going to get reported on, and they're going to bring attention to their office, and that they're going to show that they're really at the forefront of the law in terms of trying to bring to justice, so to speak, uh, these types of, of these types of defendants. So there's there's no doubt that in Chicago and some of the other major U.S. attorneys' offices, that clearly, in my view, there's there's a motivation by in some of these cases that it's going to bring a lot of favorable attention to their office. And they may disagree with that, but I don't think it's a coincidence that that's what happens on a regular basis. I want to know, uh, is there a general public uh, you know, defense in terms of that we've got to crack down on spammers and phone calls? Like we, got, we are getting so many phone calls, unsolicited calls, emails. Could they have maybe made the argument, the feds, that this was a uh, violated, you know, our own peace and, you know, right to not be, to not be spammed? Or, I mean, is that not recognized as any sort of federal right? <laughs> well, there's certainly no federal right or, or no federal general crime, but clearly the underlying problem of a spam and the perception of that the public might care about this and might think that they're doing a good service by prosecuting this type of case would certainly, in my view, be a motivating factor to try to find a creative way to bring federal charges, and that's exactly what they did. Yeah, I and uh, you know, I just like to discuss these things with you, Michael. Obviously, your argument won. It did. Well, what what happened was, you know, we we filed a couple different motions to dismiss the indictment. You know, the first one, you know, took a couple years to get a decision by the court, and that kind of fell on deaf ears. And then we filed a second one more recently, a couple years ago, because in the length of the the duration of this case, there was some new Supreme Court precedent that we thought was relevant to our case. And so we thought we had a good position to get this case dismissed. Um, That led to negotiations with the feds. And they basically said, okay, well, instead of going to trial, instead of pleading guilty, we'll do what's called a deferred prosecution, meaning, hey, if you don't commit any other crimes uh, over the course of a, a limited period of time, a year, all these charges, all 10 counts will will completely go away. They'll all be dismissed. And so it's, uh, 
it's hard to turn that down if you're a defendant. You want to go the whole way and go to trial and win, uh, but the risk is if you don't, obviously there's there's serious federal sentencing consequences. So in this case, um, we had an agreement with them. It's called the deferred prosecution, but really what it means is no prosecution at all. And so the time elapsed, he didn't do anything wrong, and all 10 counts got dismissed, which was a, a unique and a very pleasing result for us and our client. Is that come with any admission of guilt or no? Well, you have to admit to some underlying facts, okay. but you're not, you're not pleading guilty, which is the great thing. So you're not pleading guilty. You're basically saying, hey, there, there's a basis to charge me, but you're not pleading guilty to any of the offense conduct. And so, therefore, there is no finding of guilt against you. And then, formally, what happens is, after the expiration of the time period, all the charges get dismissed with prejudice, as, as if it never happened. So, uh, you know, a unique result doesn't happen very often but one that's obviously great for the client. It's great for the client. I mean, without a doubt, not going to that trial and facing potential serious charges is, is a win. I wonder if the feds would, would position this as showing someone a lesson, I don't know, like some sort of you know detriment or they're trying to deter other people from doing it again. Maybe they can hang a hat on this one too a little bit? No, I think okay. you've got to chalk it up as a loss. I mean, it, it's hard to say that when you dismiss an intent count indictment in its entirety in federal court, with, with essentially no consequences defendant, it's very hard to call that a, a win. And you certainly won't see any press release from their office calling this a win, as you usually see when they do win a case. Uh, and it's kind of funny because if you go back to when this case started back in 2016, there was a press release by their office saying, you know, essentially we have charged the, you know, the world's or the U.S.'s biggest spammer and, you know, talking about all the, the bad conduct this individual had allegedly done. But we're not going to see any similar press release now, you know, because they they essentially capitulated, uh, which was great. I can verify that. I googled for one, Mike. I didn't find one. <laughs> Mike <laughs> yeah, Leonard you from can keep googling. Mike Leonard from uh, Leonard Trial Lawyers. We're going to chat some more. Okay, after the news, Mike. Sounds good, John. Thanks. All right. Why don't we put Michael on hold there? I do want to take one more quick guess to the question of the day today. Uh, became popular in the seventies. Then it was outlawed because it was too popular after some big movies came out. But then it was ruled a constitutional right just a few years ago. Let's go to Brian. Hey, Brian, you're on WGN. Uh, hi. Is it strip clubs? No, it's not. But I like the guess. <laughs> I would. I just wish there was some you know, court ruling that said that we have a constitutional right to strip clubs. Not that I'm saying that I for mm. or against. I just think that'd be a funny thing that a judge would have to rule on. Thanks for the call, Brian. I know. Thank you, sir. Bye-bye. Time for the news on WGN. Michael Leonard, the plot thickens. We can't quite get an answer yet. Are you even old enough to understand what jarts are? I just, I'm, I'm yeah. questioning that. So I think that they were, so I was born in 84, which I know drives people crazy um, sometimes when I say that. But we didn't play with jarts, uh, but we were still in the era growing up before cell phones and the internet. So I don't think I'm that far separated from uh, the, the era in which you grew up, Mike, is what I'm trying to say. Well, it makes me sad, John, because I graduated from high school in 1984, so I, I think you were. But jarts, it was a lawn game where you throw this oh, um, yeah. thing with the, with the metal end, and, I mean, if you, if you got hit with that thing, boy, it was probably over for you. But um, that was back in the days where consumer safety laws weren't weren't a big deal, but that was a great game. Oh, boy. you so you actually played jarts? Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it, was, it was one of those, you know, 70s, early 80s, probably gone by the early 80s, you know, dangerous lawn games where you, you know, you're throwing this thing 10, 20 feet in the air, but the end of it is like a metal 
sharp metal point, How which, is, you know, is probably going to kill you if you get hit. Or it's not going to kill you, but seriously injure yeah. you for life. I, I look back at that. I just uh, how was that ever allowed? It reminds me of the SNL sketch where Dan Aykroyd plays a guy, a toy guy, I believe, and he talks about uh, like bag of glass trying to sell that, and then uh, I forget the other <laughs> person. It's like it's it, it's comparable. Why would you ever let kids throw giant darts at each other in the lawn? Maybe I just grew up uh, t- in a too soft of a generation, Mike. Yeah, John, kids were tougher back then. <laughs> kids were just tougher, you know. Oh, for sure. Hey, I, I wanted to ask you about this. I know you do a lot of whistleblower cases, um, which I, I just love, and I feel like it fits into what you do about representing the little guy or gal in the fight against you know big corporations or the government, whatever it is. I, I'm so confused about the Supreme Court deciding that they're going to hear a case, so it hasn't happened yet, but it is an interesting wrinkle in whistleblower cases in that a private citizen, perhaps working for a private company, can become a whistleblower on behalf of the U.S. government. Let's say the U.S. government is owed money from this private uh, or the U.S. government pays this private. Let's say it's Medicare paying is was in this case Medicare paying a private company. And someone says, hey, we are over this company's overcharging Medicare or whatever it might be. I'm going to be a whistleblower on behalf of the government, even though I don't work for the government. Is that unusual allowed? And what are you seeing with future cases with this? Yeah, so so what you're talking about is this concept under what's called the Federal False Claims Act, which goes back all the way to the time of Abraham Lincoln, when contractors were w- ripping off the government, saying they were selling them supplies and not giving them supplies. But fast forward to about the 70s, and all of a sudden that statute became back in vogue. And what it allows for is an individual who has direct personal knowledge of fraud being committed upon the government, in this case the federal government, to bring a whistleblower lawsuit, and the way it's filed is it's filed secretly, meaning it's under seal, and it names the company that's committing the fraud, and it identifies the fraud. And, and you made a good point. A lot of times it comes up in healthcare fraud because that's so rampant. And let's say I'm a whistleblower. I filed this case because I see that my employer is bilking the government by claiming they're providing services that they're not. There may be millions or tens of million dollars at issue. And then what happens is under the law, the government gets the first crack. So the federal government, the civil U.S. attorneys' divisions, uh, they look at the case, they investigate, they can gather documents, they can, and they can decide, hey, this is a good case we want to take. And meaning the legal concept is we're going to intervene on, we're going to take the case over, and we're going to litigate it for you, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but oftentimes, and most of the time, they don't. They'll do an investigation, and you may have a great case. You may have a client who has a great case that you filed, but the government says, ah, you know, we're not going to take it over. We're not going to intervene, but you can go ahead, counsel and the, and, the, and the client. You guys can go ahead and litigate. Have at it, right? Mm-hmm. And the benefit to the government is that you do all the work, and they still get 70% of the reward. Whoa. So let's say, yeah, so let's say you recover $100 million for them. They're going to get 70% of that. The whistleblower is going to get. 30% of that, which still is a huge incentive. Oh, yeah. That's why people bring these cases. But what you're talking about is a, is a wrinkle that comes out sometimes. So let's say the government tells me and my client, hey, we're not going to take the case over, but have at it, go litigate it. And so we start the litigation process. You know, we start to take depositions and gather documents and litigate it like a normal case. Um, but what happens sometimes, but not very often, is the government then steps back in and says, hold on. Now we want to dismiss your case, which seems crazy that they Wait, would have that right. Why would they right. do it? 
Um, they would either they, they claim they do it for reasons such as, well, we think your case isn't strong. It might make bad precedent for us. Or uh-huh. there's some fundamental flaw, the whistleblower, they're a criminal or they're a bad guy. So rarely, but sometimes the government comes back and says, gee, no, we're going to ask the judge to dismiss the case. And so what you're referring to, John, is a case that's going up to the United States Supreme Court because some federal courts have said, yeah, it's okay. The government can do that. They can step back in and try to dismiss the case if they have some compelling interest. There has to be some something they can point to which makes it important in the public interest for the case to be dismissed. Other federal circuits say, no, they can't do that at all, or there's no, they don't have to make any showing of any important public interest. They can just step in and dismiss it. On their whatever, they, so for whatever the, reason they want. For whatever reason or no reason at all. So now the U.S. Supreme Court's taken this subject up, and they're going to decide and give guidance and say, can the government do this? And if they do it, do they have to provide any reason or any compelling reason to do so? So if you're in my shoes, you know, in the, uh, an attorney who represents individuals who bring these cases, we clearly don't want the court to say that it's okay for the government to just step back in later and dismiss the case or dismiss for no reason at all. And in fact, years ago, I had one of these cases in state court. And, you know, as we've talked about before, the state courts have very similar whistleblower lawsuit laws like this statutes. And so we had a case and what the defendant did is they went to the attorney general's office in the case and tried to convince them to dismiss the case, brought up a bunch of, you know, kind of what we call garbage about our, about our, about our plaintiffs, our whistleblowers, and tried to convince them, oh, these aren't, these aren't good whistleblowers. They're not worthy. You know, you should dismiss the case. And we literally had a, a battle, a big hearing, and the judge said, nope, we're not dismissing this case. You know, they, they have good representation, and whatever you say about these whistleblowers, it's completely irrelevant to the fraud that's being committed. This case is going forward. So that was an exciting, you know, day for us. But we really hope the U.S. Supreme Court will say, you know, it, it doesn't make sense. It's unfair to have the government step back in later and just willy-nilly dismiss the case. We hope at least the Supreme Court will say, hey, if they're allowed to do that, they really have to show a compelling public need. Yeah, there should be a, a burden to on get them rid of your case. And I mean, don't we? I would imagine as citizens, we would want whistleblowers to be able to come forward, bring cases, even if the feds say it's not just worth our resources to do this ourselves. We at least still want whistleblowers to come forward and help save the government money if they're being defrauded. Like that, oh, that's yeah. like a no-brainer I mean, to you know, me. Yeah, what happens on on an annual basis? You know, hundreds of millions to billions of dollars are recovered by way of private whistleblowers and their attorneys bringing in these suits without really any government involvement at all. The government passes on the case, lets you go ahead and litigate. They sit on the sidelines. And, you know, huge money is coming into the government coffers as a result of this. And we know that people are incentivized, not always simply, John, like, you know, they're not all pure like you. They don't want to just do good. But people are often incentivized by the fact they can make money off the case. But it's a public good. If they're reporting the fraud, you know, the idea, it doesn't matter if they're going to get financial reward. They're doing a public good by bringing the fraud forward. So that's that's the incentive under the under this law. Okay. Michael Leonard, I'm going to put you on hold. That's uh, really glad for breaking that one down. That's a real niche issue, but certainly something that's important to a lot of people, and it'll be decided next term. We'll take a break. We're going to talk with Michael Leonard a little bit about the Highland Park case and uh, what could uh, the federal government do if they want to step in. Can they? Will they? And uh, we'll get to that after this on Let's Get Legal, powered by the Illinois State Bar Association on WGN. Mike Leonard, uh, <laughs> there's no natural 
natural transition from Champagne back to Mike Leonard. Uh, perhaps there is, if I have thought a little bit more about it. But Michael Leonard, before we get on to uh, what happened in Highland Park, just really quickly, you know, we've been talking about whistleblowers. We talked about one of your cases. If someone out there is listening right now and they are uh, interested in, you know, having you help them out, what sorts of people do you help out? Hello, Michael. I guess, I guess you lost me there, John. I think it goes on mute. Um, but we, we, we represent individuals uh, in uh, very different types of cases, but there, there's a great similarity. We represent individuals traditionally in federal criminal cases in Chicago and across the country, and also sometimes in state court criminal cases. But then on the civil side, we also represent individuals typically who are whistleblowers, who are suing large corporations, or who have employment-related claims against large corporations. So uh, like you kind of said earlier, you know, it's uh, it's representing typically the little guy, and you know, typically we get the call when someone's in trouble. So th- that's kind of what we do. That's our forte. And as you know, taking cases to trial and, and hopefully winning them is is really what we're known for. Obviously, I'm sure you've been following after uh, what happened in Highland Park uh, just about two weeks ago on Monday. And uh, I don't know if you have any sense of uh, maybe other charges we might see if the federal government might step in with charges or circumstances where that would happen. I just kind of wanted to open that up and see your, your take on some of those questions. Yeah, what, what, is it, what a, just a horrific situation. I just can't even imagine what it must be like for the people to have gone through that that tragedy and, and just the, the impact upon so many people and, and even just going forward, it's just horrible. Um, I think from a, a federal prosecution perspective, you know, even though the U.S. Attorney's Office and the U.S. Attorney appeared at those press, press conferences early on, I, I would be very surprised if there are federal charges arising out of this. I mean, really, at this point, you know, the individual, the the shooter is charged with at least seven counts of, of murder, and he'll be charged with, you know, dozens of other counts of attempted murder. And, you know, based upon what's publicly been reported, that he's essentially given full and complete admissions, if that's true, um, it's extraordinarily unlikely, John, as we know, that he'll ever probably see the light of day again. Mm-hmm. So really there wouldn't be a motivation on the federal, on the feds part to, to get involved at this point because there's really no purpose. And, you know, if, if this were a situation where, you know, the federal sentence or the federal or uh, where the state sentence and the state charges weren't going to do enough, then you could see maybe a successive federal prosecution if it was something that could be shown to be a hate crime or right. hate motivated. Um, in this case, it doesn't appear from what I've seen is that that was his motivation. It doesn't appear clear what his motivation was. But if it was a hate crime or religious based and that some people had speculated early on that was his motivation, but that doesn't necessarily seem to be the case anymore, then the feds could come in with a federal hate crime statute charge. But at this point, you know, that doesn't seem to be likely because that doesn't seem to be the motivation. But more importantly, you know, we're, we're talking about an individual who's likely to get you know, nothing other than a life sentence and never see the light of day again. So there's just not a motivation from a resource standpoint to, to bring those charges anyways. Right, because, I mean, that would be the only way the feds could step in, right? A hate crime or, I guess, I don't know, since he went into Wisconsin briefly, I don't know if that elevates, you know, transfer yeah, anything well, like that. I don't know if you know if there would be yeah, anything else. I, mean, I think that, you know, if it had been a, um, if he had been motivated by the religious um you know, religious denomination of the individuals in Highland Park, then they certainly could bring a hate crime case. Uh, or there might be some federal gun charges that could arise out of what he did. It doesn't It doesn't sound like that, you know, w- when he went to Wisconsin, it didn't seem like he went there with the intent to carry out a crime. I know from what's been reported 
in his confession that he indicated he traveled there, not necessarily with the intent to commit a crime, but thought about it while he was there, which is just just yeah. mind numbing as well. Uh, but but I don't I don't expect the feds to get involved. Clearly, they were very involved in the investigation. It was certainly an all hands on deck approach, which is what you want and what you'd expect. And I know you had all the federal agencies immediately involved, which is great to see. But I think it's going to be you know a state prosecution, you know, resulting in a in a plea agreement, and then you know probably uh, a life sentence for this individual. Yeah, and I know a lot of people are calling for action against the parents. I know that that you know that'll play out. We saw that in the the Michigan case of the school shooting. I know that that's pretty rare in one of these events. Uh, I don't know if you've uh, any take or how that would work in moving forward because I know a lot of people are asking about it. Yeah, I think there's a, a fundamental distinction between the facts we know about the Michigan case that you're referring to, where that shooter, the young person, went into a school. And versus the Highland Park case, I think in the Michigan case, it was established, at least publicly from what's been reported, that those parents did have some level of active involvement and knowledge of what the individual was attending to do and actually seemed to have you know, aided and abetted him in carrying out the crime, which is just really hard to believe that parents would right. would do that. In, in this case, in the Highland Park case, we don't seem to see facts that suggest that the parents in any way aided or abetted him. You know, people from from a civil lawsuit perspective, you know, they might face lawsuits because they were negligent, they were reckless. But there's no there's no evidence that I've seen so far that shows that they had any intent to aid him. They did anything to aid and abet him that they knew he was going to carry this out. Uh, clearly, sounds like it was a troubled home life, but you know that doesn't equate to to a crime, right? And um, it, so I, I wouldn't I wouldn't expect charges uh, to be brought against parents in the Highland Park case, but. You know, like we said, there there may be uh, clearly civil, a number yeah. of, of civil lawsuits, but the question will be: is there is there really any money to recover there, anyways? Right, Mike Leonard. I wish we had more time today. LeonardTrialLawyers.com. Uh, as always, we appreciate your perspective, and we'll talk soon. Okay, John, enjoyed it. Have a great rest of the weekend. And and I did hear you say that thing about University of Illinois, but what about the Hawkeyes? They seem to really have your number in basketball and football. Maybe you can talk about that he, in your next is segment. Is he testing my need to turn his phone off? There we go. Have a good one, Mike. <laughs> well, you ended it anyway. Sorry. Yeah, there you care. go. Bye-bye. Bye. <laughs> News next for the Northwestern Medicine News.